Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Hey guys, welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Today, Jen and I are going to be talking about a topic that we get a lot of questions about from consultees and people in trainings, and that has to do with how to pace treatment with EMDR. Um, Just a lot of the different decision points where we have to decide when it's time to move forward, when we need to hang back a little bit. So we're going to talk about a lot of different uh, pieces of that puzzle and kind of go through some uh, tools that we use to help make those decisions during the process. You know, I think there's two types of pacing, and we're going to break this down into a couple of different episodes, but we've got the pacing of the therapeutic process in our EMDR work with the client, and then we have the pacing within each individual session. Mm -hmm. Guys, I'm going to just let you know I'm about to lose my voice at any point. It's a great day for recording (laughs) podcasts. It happens to be allergy season here in Missouri, so we're all suffering just a little bit. (laughs) So you might hear me come in and out and get a little raspy, but excuse my voice. So today we're really going to focus in on the pacing of the overall therapeutic treatment. And then in a later episode, we'll break down the individual session. Mm -hmm. But there's several important things we want to keep in mind as we're considering pacing for our clients. And the first is every client is so unique. So everything that we do, we have to look at it through the lens of what that client is needing, Mm -hmm. um, the work that they're trying to do, what their goals are for the session, and let them be the general guideline for how we need to pace it and how quickly we need to move forward or maybe how slowly and how long we need to stay in processing. Mm -hmm. In other words, there's not a a formula, Mm -hmm. right? Or if there is a formula, the main variable is going to be the uniqueness of the client. We need to be factoring that in at all times. So one of the tools that we use a lot, and you guys should have been given something like this in your training, is a readiness checklist. Um, If you did not get this in your training, you can actually find it online. And Kathleen Martin, who's a well-known trainer, has actually made this available online. So thank you, Kathleen. Um, And one of the reasons why we really like her version of it is that she has two different versions. One version is the normal version that is going to work for most people. Then there's also a version for complex trauma. So if someone comes in with a history that we would consider a complex, lifelong trauma, um, severe attachment issues, that kind of stuff, then we can use that other readiness checklist because there's some factors with that population that are unique to them. And we want to make sure and consider those as we're making that decision. Kathleen does such a great job at breaking it down. I mean, it is a very thorough set, uh, checklist to go through. And it just takes each each part, the therapeutic alliance, the preparation and resourcing, and just really um, dives into a deeper look into each category. This is something you wouldn't necessarily complete with the client, mm-hmm. and you don't give the client the checklist to go through themselves, but it's kind of just a running list for you to scan through before determining you know, what target we're going to step into reprocessing on. We're going to look through this and see is our client ready to take that next step? And if not, what areas do we need to put our focus in? Mm -hmm. So we're not dragging out the process, but we have a really specific goal in mind of this is exactly what we need to be focused on to get them ready to to do trauma processing. That's a really good point, Jen. So sometimes when we're working with someone, we kind of just have a gut feeling or a hunch that they're not ready. 
um, or that they are ready. And this is a way of kind of helping us really externalize what that hunch is about. And if if our hunch is that they're not ready, um, being able to use that checklist to kind of narrow in on what do we need to be focused on? How do we need to focus our time and efforts to try to get to ready as quickly as possible? Um, and that's one of the ways that I tend to use that list is to kind of help me make therapeutic decisions about how to focus our sessions and our time. You know, this is just a little... Um pet peeve of mine, but it's it's a readiness for trauma processing, not mm-hmm. a readiness for EMDR therapy. Mm-hmm. Please clarify what you mean by yes. that, <laughs> And if any of you have worked with me in consultation, you've probably heard me um, talk about this again and again, but all, all that we're, everything we're doing, it's all EMDR therapy. Mm-hmm. It's all within that framework of the AIP model and everything that we do that's not trauma processing is with the goal in mind that we know we have to process the trauma to really heal um, the client and to um, work through those symptoms, not just temporarily manage them, but resolve them. And so uh, when you're doing this readiness checklist, if there's things that you recognize the client needs to focus more in, we're still doing EMDR because we're working on those things in preparation to process trauma. Right. So you could be uti- utilizing um, CBT, DBT, motivational interviewing, any technique, strategy, mindfulness, deep breathing, maybe just verbal processing mm-hmm. some things. But all of that is with the awareness that this is not healing their trauma, but it's giving them the tools that they need to be able to step into trauma processing and really be successful. Right. But it's still all under the umbrella of the preparation phase of EMDR. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So one of the main factors that we you know, have to consider when we're looking at readiness is the therapeutic alliance between us and the client. And on one hand, we all know this, right? We've known it since the time we were all in grad school, that that is the most important factor. But when it comes to this, sometimes we really need to slow down and think through um, between us and the client, If something big happened in the midst of trauma reprocessing, do we both feel confident that we have the tools and the trust and practice together to handle whatever that may be? Um, And to me, that's a very, very different uh, question than do I feel like I have good rapport with the client? Mm -hmm. We can have rapport with someone pretty quickly, but that idea of do we work well together? Do we work through those really, really hard moments together? That to me is kind of a whole nother level of that therapeutic alliance. So when I'm thinking about um, that readiness for trauma processing, I'm really asking myself that question between me and the client, do we have all the tools that we need in order to handle whatever comes up? Um, And now obviously, I'm never going to say that's 100% for sure. But I don't want to move into trauma reprocessing until I feel pretty sure. Mm-hmm. And I'm always kind of monitoring myself in that place too. Am, am I able to attune with my client? Mm-hmm. Am I able to be there with them, feel with them, walk alongside them in this? And if not, I may not be ready to do the trauma processing with right. them. And that's an important piece because they need to know that we're there. They need to feel us there in that safety. And we're not... Um, our wisdom and our words don't have to be in it. We don't have to be interjecting things, mm-hmm. but just that presence and being able to be attuned enough to know um, 
they're doing okay, or they might need some support, or they need some reassurance that I'm here and, you know, just let it pass you by. So Mm -hmm. having that connection on our part as a therapist is important. And then for the client, for them to trust that we can work through it together. So if they get to a stuck point, they have a trust that we're going to be able to help support them as they move past that. And a good way to start to assess this is in preparation when we're doing things like calm, comfortable place and containment. If they're struggling in that and they they have a hard time even trusting us to be alongside them while they go to a calm, comfortable place, Mm -hmm. they're probably not going to trust us to be alongside them while they go through their trauma. So we're, we're, checking in on this and assessing this and addressing it if needed in that preparation phase as a way to determine, do we have the alliance that we need to go into trauma processing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another factor that we're kind of constantly looking at is if our client is having attachment challenges and that kind of leads right into personality disorder diagnoses as well. Um, And we're going to do probably more than one episode, honestly, on personality disorders and attachment because it is such a huge issue. But in in terms of readiness for trauma processing, um, that is where attachment challenges are going to really, really show up. Um, So we need to, once again, make sure that we feel like we have at least a pretty good understanding of what those attachment challenges are what kind of resources and interweaves we may need uh, to have pre-prepared before we get into trauma processing so we have a way of addressing those. Um, And if we're working with somebody that has a lot of transference and attachment stuff to work out before we can have a good therapeutic alliance, then we need to do that work before we get into trauma processing. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do that, and we can talk more about how to do that later on. But it bears mentioning here that we need to keep our eye on those uh, attachment factors um, and personality disorder factors in the uh, readiness phase. So <clears throat> one of the people that has talked a lot about how to determine pacing for trauma therapy in general is Babette Rothschild. She wrote the book, The Body Remembers. A lot of us have read that book. If you haven't, please stop what you're doing right now and order it on Amazon. It's amazing. (laughs) Um, It's actually the book that I use um, as a grad school textbook when I teach the trauma class um, because I really feel like it is such a good primer for understanding um, how trauma impacts people. And I feel like it is such a good lead in to understanding the AIP model and how to conceptualize cases from this perspective. So um, she breaks trauma down into a couple of different categories. Uh, The two main categories she calls type one and type two. Keep it simple, right? So type one is the one that we all think of in terms of simple trauma, non-complex. There's been one event um, it's hasn't had a lot of generalization to every area of their life, or if it has, um, it hasn't, you know, turned into a big complex spider web of stuff. Um, and so that, that type one trauma, our preparation phase with them is frankly going to be much shorter and they may need one session of preparation before we move into trauma processing. These are the people that we can move really, really fast and it can be really, really fun. And then she talks about type 2 trauma. Um, Type 2 trauma is what we would consider um, the more complex cases. And the really notable thing here is that she breaks down type 2 trauma into two further categories. Um, 
And the factor there that she uh, differentiates is the resiliency factor. So we ha- we have type two trauma that people come in and they present with very, very low resilience, meaning they have very little adaptive networks. They have very little internal resourcing that they're already coming in with. Okay. So these are the people that we would likely see with attachment struggles, with personality disorder diagnoses, with other co-occurring disorders, etc. cetera. Um, but mostly the, the main factor here is that they have not been able to spontaneously develop uh, resourcing on their own, or if they have very, very little. On the other hand, we have people come in that even though they have tremendous amounts of trauma, they have incredible resiliency. They've figured out how to manage in, frankly, quite miraculous ways sometimes, right? They've found relationships, they've found faith, they've found activities, you know, methods of coping that has created this buffer around them. Um, That means that they can go through incredible amounts of trauma, but be much more prepared to move into trauma reprocessing more quickly. So we want to talk a little bit about how do we approach these two different ones. Um, If you have somebody that comes in and you identify them as complex trauma with resilience, then the main thing that we're doing is discovering what those resiliency factors are, what those resources are that they have already developed, right? What relationships are there? How can we call on those and utilize those and maybe install those even further so that they're there and they're ready for us to use in trauma reprocessing? Uh, Jen, do you have any examples of that? You know, clients where you've kind of discovered something and then turned it into a resource that you could later use? This is something I use all the time with my clients because often they have these resiliency factors, but they're not aware of them. Mm, That's a good point. They know they've been through a lot and they know that, hey, I'm doing okay in my life. I've got a good job. I've got a family for the most part. I'm managing. But a lot of times their trauma is so disruptive to them that that's, that's kind of at the forefront of their mind. And so a big part is helping them just to be reminded of what these resiliency factors are. And it can be something as simple as asking, I know, what qualities do you feel like you need in your current state of life? And so if it's, you know, I wish I could speak up more, that I trusted my instincts more. And then being able to go back and say, when is a time when you faced something mm-hmm. really challenging and you you trusted your instincts and it turned out okay? And then that just helps them pull up, you know, an experience in their life. It's brought to the surface. And then we go in and we really tap into that memory by asking them in the image that represents it. um, The physical sensation that goes with it. Their positive Mm self-belief that they hold as they think of it. And then saying, okay, notice that and doing slow, short sets of bilateral to help strengthen and install it. I use this probably, I mean, it takes five minutes mm-hmm. at most, five to seven minutes. And so I'll often I use this in almost every session with my clients who are needing, who have the complex trauma and are needing to be reminded that they do have these positive resources and just bringing them to the front. And it can really change just their symptoms temporarily, you know, for the weeks to come while we're preparing to get into the trauma. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that, that kind of resourcing, um, that's called mastery resourcing. Um, and I think we've talked about it in previous episodes, but if you guys want to know more about that, Jim Knipe's book, uh, the EMDR toolbox goes into detail about how to do that. Um, and I do the same thing, you know, frequently. I think, you know, one of my favorite ones 
is if somebody has, you know, given birth, that's a really good mastery mm-hmm. resource, right? Because if you've gone through that successfully, you're amazing. Um, things like running a marathon, getting a job that you wanted. Um, graduating high school. Graduating or- high school. Yeah, getting your degree, stuff like that. Anything like that um, can be really positive. Or even something simple like, I went on a roller coaster even though I was really scared and it turned out to be really fun, right? Yeah. That could be a mastery resource. Um So for people that come in with a lot of resiliency, we can tell that they have it. Um, Our preparation phase with them is uncovering and discovering the resources that are already naturally there and then enhancing them with bilateral and making a plan for how we can later use those in trauma reprocessing. So that's our process with that population. If somebody comes in that is complex trauma, high trauma, with low to little resiliency, that process is very different. And frankly, it's a lot longer and Mm -hmm. much more challenging. Because what we're doing is rather than just uncovering what is already naturally there, we have to build it from scratch. Now, sometimes there are little pieces here and there that they have developed on their own. And that that's a really great starting point, right? So for instance, if they have you know, memories that are even halfway good, maybe we can utilize those to build from. Um, Or it could be really, really small things like when they were a kid, they had a book that they really liked and they really Mm -hmm. identified with a character in a book. We can use that, right? So this process is much more about trying to find those little tiny bits of positive and really building on those, not just installing what's already there, but get, getting really creative in how we enhance that, how we make it bigger and more accessible to them. Um, and that can be challenging and take time. This is the part where if we don't have a good therapeutic alliance with our client, we're going to get really stuck. Yeah. That that has that factor has to be really solid in order to you know build that adaptive network with them that isn't there. Sometimes it's our relationship with them that begins to build their adaptive mm-hmm. network. And that's okay, right? We're not creating an over-dependence with them. We're doing good therapy to allow them to experience things like unconditional positive regard and acceptance and all of those things. And when they do, and when we can tell that they are really connecting with that experience for the first time, we can install that. Yes. And we want to install that so that we're building that adaptive network and creating some resiliency that they didn't have before. Yes. You know, and when you started talking about um, creating those experiences, I was thinking of a couple of clients who we have actually tapped into resources that are external from them. So they had so much trauma, they have a really hard time connecting with anything positive in their childhood. But one example, um, I had a certain client say that she saw a mom, a mother bird sitting Mm -hmm. by and kind of protecting the nest. And as she got close to the, as she was walking and as the client walked near the nest, the mother bird kind of acted protective over that. Mm -hmm. And something about that, she really connected with that, um, enjoyed watching that. And we were able just to install that positive um, experience of her viewing something external from her, but that was really healthy and appropriate Mm -hmm. um, and natural and something that she didn't have as a child. Right. Um, but her getting to kind of experience it vicariously through observing it. So we can start with those small things. We ultimately want to work towards it being a personalized internal experience that they're having. Right. With these clients, I also do a lot of the same type of mastery and other resourcing, but 
with what comes up for them in that session or between sessions. So I will ask strategic questions that say, you know, what's one thing that went really well this week? Or Mm. what was one positive interaction you had with someone at work? Or um, one successful thing you accomplished? And then we will install that. And so it's nothing in the past, but it's what's happening in their life now. And even if it's, well, I did a really good job with my calm place and I got to feel relaxed, let's tap back into that and further install and strengthen that. Or someone smiled at me when they crossed the street. It can be the smallest things, but we've got to grab onto whatever we can Mm -hmm. to start to develop that adaptive network. Right. And the main goal there is that we're building a template that they didn't have before, Mm -hmm. a template of something positive, a template of resource. And so the, the main factor is... Does it create a feeling of it in their body? Does thinking about that mama bird create a sensation of protectiveness? And if it does, we can use it. Um, and that, that I think is when we start to see real change is when our clients not only, you know, conceptually get the idea of protectiveness, but they can start to feel it because that feeling state is something that we can then draw on during reprocessing that really shifts everything and starts to make things move a lot faster and make it much more tolerable for them. And as strange as it may sound, having the client step into the role for this client was step into the role of that baby bird Mm -hmm. that's worthy and deserving of being protected Um, and and just step in and feel that, feel that mother bird like protecting you. It sounds bizarre. It sounded bizarre to her. And she's like, are you crazy? But (laughs) she went with it and she could feel it. And she really noticed it was something she connected with and it was a positive session. Well, because from that place we can then move into that is what you deserved. And letting, you know, letting them feel that and even go through the grief of the fact that she didn't to what whatever degree they can, that's really, really good and deep work mm-hmm. um, and can really start to shift the process for them and get them ready to go even deeper into, into trauma reprocessing. Preparation phase in summary has several purposes. We know that we're trying to develop a resiliency and Um, for the clients and increase their resiliency and their readiness to go into trauma processing. We're using this as a tool to assess them and say, you know, do we need to stay here longer? Can we move forward? We're making sure that we're focused in, in this phase on our therapeutic alliance and our bond with them. So positive resourcing with a client doing these exercises really enhances our relationship and our alliance with the client where we get to be attuned with them and they get to feel that we're attuned with them. And there's that sense of, you know, connection made between us and them. But then we're also developing the adaptive network that we will later call on when we are processing trauma. We'll need these pieces and either they will naturally call on it or we may use them as interweaves if if the client is getting stuck and kind of aid them and using these resources to help um, process and weave it into their processing of the trauma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, another you know main component of this phase is really assessing and then developing affect tolerance, right? So in the midst of trauma reprocessing, when things get a little or a lot intense, because sometimes they do, um, do we know that they can handle that and tolerate it? 
And so one of the things that we want to look at when we're, you know, assessing for affect tolerance is dissociation. And we're not going to go into a lot of detail here because this needs to be a whole separate episode and maybe more than one um, on how to handle dissociation. But at this point, just know that we really need to be assessing for that. Um, because if somebody is dissociating routinely, when we go to trauma reprocess, it's kind of a guarantee that they're going to dissociate. Right. Mm-hmm. If they're doing it in their normal day to day life, they're going to do it during trauma reprocessing. Now, we don't have to wait until somebody quits dissociating in order to do trauma reprocessing because we would be waiting forever. Right. But we do need a plan. Um, we need a couple of things. We need to know that we can catch it and identify it when it starts to happen. Um, and we need to know what to do about it to bring them back to present awareness so that they can maintain that dual awareness and continue a trauma reprocessing and have it actually be effective. Because if somebody is dissociating, um, trauma reprocessing is not going to work. Bilateral stimulation will not do what we want it to do. Or if it does, it's going to be much, much slower and much harder on the client. So ideally, we want to be maintaining that dual awareness all the time. And when we start to see that they're slipping away into dissociation, we know what to do to stop it and get them grounded again before we continue. Um, so yeah, we're looking at dissociation. The other thing that we want to look at is just their general emotional awareness and regulation skills. So things like, do they know how to talk about their feelings? Do they have the words to identify them? Do they feel their feelings in their body ever, right? Do they have a connection, a physical connection um, to their emotions in a way that lets them, you know, know that that's a whole body experience? Or are, every time we ask them, where do you feel that in their body? They say, I don't know, I just feel it in my mind, mm-hmm. right? We get that response a lot. So if I get that response routinely from somebody, that lets me know, eh, we need to slow down and do a little bit of work on where do emotions show up in the body and how to communicate about that. So if our clients answer no to any of those questions Melissa just ran through, it doesn't mean that they can't do trauma processing. It doesn't mean that it won't be successful. It means that we need to spend more time in preparation focused in on that point. And when we move into trauma processing, being aware of that so that maybe some of our interweaves help them to shift over. So where in processing we may naturally say, notice that, go with that. This time I might say, where does that come up for you in your body? Mm-hmm. And be really strategic in directing them there so that we're making sure that they are taking the time to notice it there and allow that channel to process as well. Yeah. Yeah. Because they struggle to naturally go there on mm-hmm. their own. Yeah. That makes sense. So when we determine that the client is ready, we what's the next step? Um, and the answer to that is we want to first, there's a couple of options. We may say, okay, our client is ready for trauma processing, but they're not ready to tap into their very biggest trauma experience. They're not ready to go back to the very first time it happened or the very worst experience of it. And maybe some clients are, maybe we have more, you know, single incident trauma experiences and we determine readiness for that. But for a lot of clients, that won't necessarily be the case. And so we may do something, um, where we're looking at what is some type of more recent experience or even a future target. Now, this is not standard approach, but this is approach that says we're going to target this to get a little bit more information on their readiness, to collect some information on how do they process, um, how, how much support do they need there, 
Are they able to regulate their emotions and their body sensations? So we're just kind of observing and collecting more information in that. The other option um, is what we call test balloon targets. It's what some people refer to them as, but it's choosing smaller targets. Those that have a lower SUD score, we're not going after the nines and the tens, but maybe trying a three or four on the SUD score on the subjective units of disturbance. And so we would start with processing that. Now, clearing that out, we may see some barriers to that. It may not fully clear because we have previous experiences feeding into that in that same memory network. Um, And that also the um, positive cognition may not get fully strengthened either. But we're able to see, are they able to tolerate that smaller event and process through that successfully? And how much support do they need from us? Are they going to start dissociating? Are they going to, you know, experience really intense affect that feels unmanageable? So we get a good sense of how they're doing and their readiness to continue moving forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and so this is something that, you know, Jen and I have talked about before, but in case you haven't heard us say this, um, neither she or I do the float back right away. And it is standard practice for both of us that we do um, a smaller target, one of these test balloon targets with every single client, Um, even if we feel like there's a chance that they're pretty ready, because I've been surprised before. I don't know. You probably have too, Jen, that, you know, somebody that you think is pretty ready once you get in there, um, it's bigger than we thought it was. And so these test balloons are um, just a way of making sure that we're as ready as we think we are. And for both of us, that's just standard practice at this point. Um, especially if somebody comes in with complex trauma, I would say do that without question. Don't jump to a big target, even if you think they're pretty resilient and pretty ready. Um, the other reason why this is so helpful is because it gives the client the experience of EMDR with something that is much smaller, much more manageable, and they are more likely in one session to get to a place of resolution and feeling much better. With the bigger targets, um, they're more likely to have to leave at the end of the session still at a five, still at a six, still pretty unresolved. And if that's their first experience of EMDR, that's hard. Mm-hmm. And so doing one of these smaller targets means that they leave the session really having an experience of, oh, that's what it means to really fully reprocess something. And usually we do get to a zero. Sometimes it happens that we don't, but pretty often they get to experience in one session going from distress to a zero. And that creates so much more confidence in the process, so much more buy-in to the process. Um, so at this point for both of us, it's just standard practice. And really at that point, it then becomes an adaptive Um, experience in the adaptive network Mm -hmm. because you desensitize it and then you install the positive belief. And so we've taken something that was small, um, minorly disturbing, and now it's actually an adaptive resource that we get to use um, in their network if we need it. So it's in some ways, those test balloons, those smaller targets really are almost like a phase two of preparing them. Mm -hmm. Um, It is reprocessing and desensitizing, but it also is part of preparing them to do the bigger trauma. That's right. It's just a toe dip rather than Mm -hmm. doing a cannonball into reprocessing. (laughs) We're just, you know, dipping a big toe in to see what the temperature is. So, um, okay. So another thing that, uh, you guys probably heard in, in your training, but we want to emphasize here is the idea of perpetual reprocess or resourcing. So, 
the preparation phase is never actually done, right? We're never not going to go back to resourcing if we identify a reason that we need to. Um, I would say that every client that I have done reprocessing with, at some point in that process, we realize, oh, we need a little more resourcing around this particular issue. So we're going to go back and do some resourcing and then come back to the reprocessing phase. Um, you can do that right in the midst of reprocessing, and there's almost no uh, shift of focus. Um, it's just kind of right in the midst of whatever target you're working on, or you can have a separate session of resourcing, um, in between sessions of reprocessing and either way is fine, but it's just always keep in mind that we can go back to preparation phase anytime that we need to, uh, anytime that the client needs to, and that can be really comforting to everybody involved. And the case conceptualization too, is right along with that, that we are always revisiting, how, what is our approach with this client? After every target we do, we go back and reevaluate our original plan. Okay, do we stick with it and go into the next target that we determined, or do we modify and shift and readjust, um, maybe go a different direction? So we're always wanting to reconsider that the case conceptualization, where we're headed, and let the client and the way they respond and the way they are progressing be the determined the determining factor of what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. That's right. Okay. So, um, we're going to have another episode about pacing, but, uh, in the next part, we're going to talk about pacing in an actual reprocessing session, because that's just a little bit different. There's some other factors to consider. Um, so we're going to go ahead and, uh, do that one. And I think we'll probably release them back to back so that you guys can go right from one to the other and and, uh, give us your thoughts about other ways that you help your clients uh, regulate through the process, other ways that you found that are really helpful for pacing. um, Because we like to know what tools you guys have too, because we're learning as well still. Share your feedback, your ideas, um, anything you have on our website. You can leave notes and messages on there, Instagram, Facebook, anywhere you can find us. We'd love to hear from you. Mm -hmm. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening and we'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to notice that at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time. Mm-hmm.